This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. You're listening to Body Talk. I'm your host, David Lasondak, and our guest today is a psychoanalyst, author, and my friend, Dr. Paul Geltner. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. So glad to be doing it. Really great to have you here. Today, we're going to be talking about transference and countertransference, both in the therapeutic relationship and eventually maybe into just relationships in general. And uh, I have an anecdote you might find fascinating here, but back when I had a clinic, I was interviewing a very talented therapist. In the middle of the interview, a, a red flag went off. I asked this therapist, have you ever heard of transference and countertransference? And they said, what's that? And I thought, okay, red flag number two. <laughs> then I explained what it was. And they said, oh, well, that would never happen because I would only ever be 100% professional. Mm -hmm. Which in my book kind of missed the point. So um, why don't you explain to everybody listening right now what we mean by transference and countertransference? Let me start by saying that Transference and countertransferences are terms that came from psychoanalysis. And they relate to the idea that everyone's relationships are in some sense a repetition of an earlier relationship from the past. And let's, let's limit to start the definition to transference. So the idea is that everybody's relationships are formed in the past at some point in childhood and there is a tendency to repeat them throughout later life and when we talk about transference we talk about somebody having an experience sort of a template of a relationship that's based in early life that they carry forward and it's sort of their own personal mold for looking at the world so if they had a scary father in a very oversimplified way, we might say that uh, whenever they look at men who, they, who reminds them of their father, they will be scared, whether or not the person in the present is actually threatening or frightening. Okay. And then that could change their behavior or how they respond to this person in the here and now. Exactly, exactly. So basically transference means in one sense, that when you are under the influence of a transference, you are living in the past rather than living fully in the present. That's the easiest way to look at it. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit down the road about another form of transference, but let's start with countertransference. Okay. Okay. Now, transference is the definition that we might say that we would give to the patient in a therapeutic relationship or in any clinical relationship, okay? Countertransference is the therapist's or the clinician's response to the patient. And as we will see, there are two types of countertransference. One type of countertransference is exactly the same as the patient's transference, which is to say it, it is the feelings that the, um, therapist has toward the patient that are related to their own past experience. They are a distortion. So let's say you, you are a professional working therapist in whatever field 
and you have a new patient come in who has the same name as somebody that let's just say you recently broke up with and are still trying to put the pieces back together. Would that be an example? Yeah, that would be an example or one real uh, simple example that seems oversimplified, but was real life. Uh, A guy came to me once and he had been seeing me for a while. And um, I came to my office a little bit late and he had been there early. So he saw me opening the door of my office and I had a huge pile of keys. So I went into the office and when I came out, he was gone. So I asked what happened the next time I saw him. And he said, well, when I was little, my father who was frightening had a lot of keys and I saw you had a lot of keys. So I thought maybe I better get going. Okay. (laughs) So did, did he realize that in that moment or did he put it together after he left? Well, that's interesting. He realized it in that moment. Okay. So in some ways he is suffering from a particular form of, he was suffering from a particular form of transference where he had no idea that the fact that somebody reminded him of his past didn't mean that they weren't the past. Okay. But in general, we say the transference is three things. It is largely unconscious it is largely involuntary, and it is completely repetitive. So if it's largely unconscious and it is voluntary or involuntary, Involuntary. how do you get a handle on it? To get a handle on it, I think is going to require another broadcast altogether. (laughs) I think what would be most helpful for us to get a candle on understanding what the phenomena is. Great because otherwise we're going down the whole theory of everything in, in human relations. Okay, and we, we only have about an hour, so we'll need two okay. hours for the whole theory of everything. Okay. Now, one type of countertransference is exactly what you said. Now, there is another type of countertransference, which is perhaps more interesting and in some ways more important in everyday life and in therapy, which is where the person who is experiencing the transference actually gives the therapist or anybody else in their life feelings that correspond to their transference. So we call that an induced countertransference, or another way of calling it is an objective countertransference. Okay, so that's, that's some new jargon. Could you put that in a, for example? Well, for example, suppose you come in and you see this patient who isn't scary at all to you, okay? You've heard about this person, you find out that they're a very nice person, you're looking forward to hearing about them, the referral source says this person is charming. You sit down and you've never had a particularly frightening person in your life. Let's pretend you're one of those lucky people who didn't have anyone who was frightening in their life. You sit down and within moments you start feeling terrified, okay? You start feeling threatened. You start feeling like, you are in danger. Hmm. Now, theoretically, let's say this feeling doesn't correspond to feelings that you have in your life, okay? Okay, so it really, really seems to come out of nowhere. Seems to come out of nowhere. No context. Right, right. And in the simplest possible situation, you're thinking, my God, why am I afraid of this person, okay? And the patient tells you, for instance, you know, I had the strangest dream before I came in last night. You say, oh, what was the dream? And they go, you know what? I came in and I thought to myself, 
I'm not going to let that fucker tell me anything. And if he says anything that upsets me, I'm going to hit him in the face. <laughs> okay. okay. So that's almost like precognition. Precognition. Yes. There's a lot of precognition in transference and countertransference. So what we would say in that case is your feeling was induced, created or stimulated by that patient. So it's almost like you picked up on their fear or anxiety and took it on as your own. Well, that brings us to the second type of transference. Okay. okay. So far, we've talked about transference where the, you experience somebody as being like somebody else in your life, a separate person. Okay. Another type of transference is when you end up having the feelings that the patient has. Okay. So one type of transference we might call differentiated or transference to a separate person. The other type we could call a sort of identification. The technical term is a narcissistic countertransference, where you actually feel the patient's feelings. That actually happened once to me. I had uh, a patient who was a citizen now of the United States, had lived extensively in Eastern Europe, and they knew I was getting ready to go on an educational trip to Germany, which I've done for years now. Uh, she was very, very, very concerned about me being in Europe and the possibility of a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the therapeutic session, I actually started seeing these scenes in my head of, okay, I'm on, I'm on the train from the airport and something happens and what would I do? Or I'm in this town and like all these familiar places that I've been to and going to for years, I'm suddenly seeing pictures of them in a totally new way. And my brain is saying, all right, what's your exit strategy if there's danger? You're walking down La Strasse and this happens. Where do you duck and cover? And part of me is like, I can't believe, what? where is this coming from? And I got to tell you, within five minutes, maybe less than that after this patient left, whew, it was just gone. Like I had never had the thought or felt the thought. Exactly, exactly. Some people call that emotional induction. Some people call it emotional contagion. But whatever it is, you catch their disease. You catch their emotional disease. Okay, so this is going to be part three. What's the mechanism behind that? How does that happen? Well, how does that happen? Okay. The short answer is nobody has any idea. But the longer <laughs> answer is, okay, the longer answer is a little bit more historical. Okay. okay. It is twofold, okay? One might say there's two major ways that analysts and almost everybody would say that we can relate to another person. We can relate to them as if they are a separate person or we can relate to them as if they are like us. And the dimension where, where we experience the patient's feelings is closely related to empathy and it's closely related to how a parent, particularly a mother of a very, very young baby, is going to be able to understand what the baby is feeling through empathy and through identification. So when somebody experiences you as being like them, they are very likely to stimulate or induce the feeling in you that they have, okay? Okay. So that would be how that takes place. 
that through them experiencing you as being similar to them, you end up feeling like you are similar to them. Okay, so I was I was just reading about addiction and how if you look at the biology of brain science, just being around somebody who's high or being in a situation where there's a possibility for a chemically induced euphoric experience excites some of the reward centers of the brain, which I could then equally theorize that going into a bar and everybody's being convivial and having a good evening is like, yeah, I'll have a drink. It's just like you're in the, the environment itself. The atmosphere induces something in the brain that makes you respond in a particular way. Would you think this is similar? Absolutely the same thing. This is closely related to, but you know, all of the ties have not been you know, made quite yet between this whole concept that we have motor, uh, mirror neurons Mm-hmm. in which we feel other people's feelings or we experience dimensions of how they are by this special set of neurons in the brain. But this was noticed by people long before anyone identified any neurons. It's similar to what you're describing in an addiction setting. It's similar to when you're in a crowd and everybody is going, kill, kill, kill. And then you start feeling like killing. It's similar to when I was sitting with a patient at the uh, 2000 election. And the guy was saying, God, I hope Bush wins. And I thought to myself, God, I hope Bush wins. And then I thought, what? (laughs) (laughs) Let me give you one more interesting example. Mm -hmm. Somebody walks into my office once. And you know that famous scene from uh, Duck Soup, where Groucho is looking in the mirror and he sees somebody who's just, who looks like Groucho. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to figure out if it's a reflection. So this guy comes in, and I'm in that scene in Duck Soup. Okay, I'm thinking, God, he looks just like me. Is he just like me? And the two of us began to actually move in synchrony. Now, he looked a little like me, okay? You know, he had dark hair and a beard, and he was Jewish. You know, big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, it was as if we were identical. It's as if we had seen each other's twin. Now, in reality, we were nothing like each other, right? Except for the beard and the hair. And his was straight and mine was frizzy and his was well-trimmed and I was a mess. So it wasn't even that close. But the sense of sameness can be very, very powerful. Okay, so we're going to take a left turn here, I think. Okay. Because what I was thinking about is you're talking about basically group behavior. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a bar, a euphoric experience, fight, fight, kill, kill, or even say, you know, a rock concert. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing you too and Bono talking about, we're going to try to have a transcended experience of rock and roll here tonight for everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, they pulled it off. We're actually in an opposite time right now globally we are so isolated Mm -hmm. so if we look at this group behaviors group dynamics as we start slowly coming out of this or maybe not so slowly uh, into the wide world again in these shared group activities how badly are we going to freak out it could be it could be really intense And it could be intense in the direction of everyone merges, the way the whole country is sort of, you know, polarized into two 
different tribes and everyone thinks the same thing within their tribe. It could be glorious feeling and it could be like, oh, I'm not getting what I was looking for. But whatever it is, it's going to be something intense. But I imagine it's going to be, and I'm not even talking about the the practical aspects here, but I imagine it's going to be a very rocky re-entry for most people. I think so. Can I just uh, take another left turn back? Yeah, take a I left turn back. Go back to the two types of transference. Let's do that. We're we're at a point where they're going to be more clear. Okay, so let's take another situation. And by the way, when I talk about transference, these are terms we use in the therapeutic relationship. But nothing that happens in that context is different than what happens in life. The only difference between the therapeutic relationship and what happens in life is that in a therapeutic relationship, you are either focusing on transference, trying to understand the repetition, or if you're in a different modality, you're trying to work around it, okay? But the phenomena always happens, okay? So let's say you're falling in love. You meet somebody and you fall in love, okay? Now there can be very different Um, ways you fall in love. One way you fall in love is, oh, you like you too? Me too. Really? (laughs) Do you like tacos? Yeah, I like tacos. Do you like Dos Equis? Yeah. Do you like Dos Equis and eat a taco and then listen to you too? Wow, we really know each other. So there's that feeling of sameness, a positive feeling of glorious sameness. Okay. Or, or we can say, and, or, Mm -hmm. wow, that smile of yours, it looks so familiar. And you think, wow, back in the back of my mind, who used to smile at me like that? I can't even remember. Oh, it was my mother on my birthday. She loved me. He loved me. Whoever it was, they remind me of the best features of my parents. Now, a lot of this stuff is liable to be unconscious, mm-hmm. but there are two different dimensions to the transference. One of them being the narcissistic and the other one being the separate object. So how would one distinguish which is which? Well, in a love relationship, it's just about impossible until the <laughs> initial romance is over and then you start fighting and then you have to tease everything out. <laughs> But in a therapeutic relationship, and this is whether you're doing psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, body work, whatever, you know, somatic experience, what you want to do is you want to look at your feeling and you want to look at what the patient is saying and you want to see where there's similarities and where there are differences. And when there are similarities, you want to figure out what kind of similarity they are. So let's take the narcissistic type. Okay. The person comes in and goes, I just don't know what to do with myself. I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm lost. Now the therapist might feel, I don't know what to do with this person. I'm pretty skilled, but I don't know what to do with them. I'm feeling lost. That's a narcissistic transference and the narcissistic mm-hmm. counter-transference. Mm-hmm. You feel that's one of the most interesting ones because clinicians get that one all the time. I feel like I'm doing great today. Everything is wonderful. And the clinician thinks, 
I am one hell of a therapist, aren't I? <laughs> Look how well they're doing. I am really good. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's a mutually beneficial narcissistic transfer, right? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a... Now, on the other hand, patient comes in and goes, I don't know what it is, but um, I just feel like nobody likes me. You know, my partner doesn't like me. My boss doesn't like me. I called my friends. They don't like me. And the therapist is thinking to themselves, I like him okay, but he didn't pay me last month. And... He trapped mud on my office floor, and he's a little boring, you know? I mean, I don't know whether he even deserves a therapist that's as good as I am. Now, obviously, the vast majority of therapists are not going to be saying that, but those kinds of thoughts keep lurking in. No, no, I really like this guy, but the mud on his shoes is really bothering me. Why couldn't he have wiped them off? You know, my wife always says I leave messes all over the place. And then she gets mad at me. Can you imagine? And the therapist says to themselves, yeah, I can imagine. That's a different, that's a separate person transference. That's probably a transference of somebody who felt criticized by their parents. And now they are inducing the critical feeling in the therapist. Unconsciously by reenacting behaviors that will then elicit a similar response either to get the same response or maybe an opportunity to change the response. Both. Ideally. Exactly. Ideally. So in the example that we were talking about, the person with the muddy shoes who didn't pay on time, okay, those are actions that can be quite irritating. What's even more interesting is when you find yourself not liking the person and you can't find a single reason for it. The feeling gets stronger and stronger and you find the feeling very persistent and you say to yourself, there's no reason for me to feel this way. There must be something in my past that's making me feel this way because you're a responsible clinician and you don't blame the patient for everything. Correct. And three years later, the patient finally says, you know, it's funny, my mother always acted nice, but I don't think she liked me. I really don't think she liked me. Later in her life, she liked me a lot, but when I was little, she used to call me a filthy pig when she'd get angry. And that feeling that you've had all along that you don't like that person and the feeling that that person has that people don't like them, after years of work, finally the bell rings and you have the memory that corresponds to the feeling that you had three years earlier. I had a patient once who every time they left, I would feel drained. Right before this one session where I said, we're gonna work here, here, and here, he brought to light a condition that he was dealing with. It was not very easy for him to talk about. Once that was brought out into the open, that feeling of exhaustion when he would leave went away. Yeah. And we finished our sessions together and, and it actually went very, very fine at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and I've come to actually look at this now as an incredible bell if you will, might there be something this person isn't telling me about something? Right. And, and that's where I kind of 
become a little more detective-ish on subsequent visits and, mm-hmm. and try to find just, you know, ways to make them be more clear about the whole spectrum of their health and their body and their issues and not just the two or three that they presented to me in the first visit. Very, very fine use of uh, your feelings and of the interpersonal situation, which is very much in the spirit of transference and counter-transference. Mm-hmm. So, what about when it goes wrong? When it goes wrong, yeah. Well, uh, when when you say goes wrong, can you sort of fill in what you mean by that? Because there's so many ways things can go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's part four. Um, okay. I, I I guess why I wanted to invite you onto the program is that you know too often, uh, particularly twenty years ago and such. Um, in one's education, this kind of issue is is overly simplified. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so it's like, okay, you have a patient or you have a client, and you really want to ask them out for coffee, so you refer them to someone else. Right. You have this person, and they really remind you of your mother, and it makes you angry, so you send them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's always like, okay, you recognize something, you're not comfortable with it, so just uh, make them go away, which. Mm, seems a little limiting. A little limiting, yeah. And and often, I mean, this isn't um, your primary responsibility, uh, given the type of work that you're doing. They may be people who get fired all the time, who are sent away all the time. (laughs) Your wanting to get rid of them may fit their repetition. So on the one hand, you've been told that you should if you get uncomfortable, but that, that means that they're not allowed to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you make me uncomfortable? Exactly. And I'm going to take care of you by sending you away. Because <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> right, right. So when, you, when things blow up, according to transference and countertransference, when the situation gets out of control, that usually takes a lot of work, a lot of rational talking, and it doesn't always work. But in terms of the day-to-day management of it, okay, mm-hmm. the, the best way to manage it is to try to be alert to everything that you're feeling with the patient. If your modality allows it, keep comparing your feeling to what they're saying, because what they're saying even though it doesn't tell you the whole story, it's the only clear connection we have to what their consciousness is. We may feel they're unconscious, but there's all kinds of factors keeping their feelings unconscious. But over time, things tend to bubble up, like they did with the person who told me that their mother called them a filthy pig, Mm -hmm. or like this patient of yours who eventually told you what was wrong that person was just suppressing something. It doesn't sound like they were unconscious of the thing, but your exhaustion was probably that you felt that something was being withheld. You were trying to understand it and it gets exhausting. Yeah. And, and I wonder and hypothesize that part of the reason for the exhaustion is to keep that suppressed requires a certain borderline tension Yes, particularly if it's a if it's a physical health related condition. So if I'm going to keep this suppressed, that takes energy to suppress it. Exactly. And often it takes more energy to suppress it than it does to just put it out in the open, even if it's something that I'm not qualified to do anything about. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So in terms of handling your feelings, though, getting back to that thing, as mm -hmm. opposed to what your training is, you know, my, my suggestion would always be let yourself feel whatever you're feeling, but don't assume that you should be acting on it. Okay. Mm -hmm. You should allow the feeling in. You should consider it part of the experience of the patient. I wouldn't take too much responsibility for it unless it's something that happens all the time over and over with almost every patient. I would view the feelings that you have with the patient, particularly if you're not a psychotherapist, as part of their condition. Okay. And your job is really to just let it flow through you to the extent that you can. If you're crazy about them, as long as you can control yourself, you know that you're not going to take them out to coffee. You're not going to touch them inappropriately. You tell yourself, this is just the feeling. I don't have to act on it. Correct. Okay. Same thing if you dislike them. You're not going to pinch them because you hate them. You might want to be more careful about doing something that's potentially painful. Mm -hmm. Basically, let your mind go when you're with them to the extent that you can do that while you're attending to what your main job is. And that's where, that's where having a good breath practice or a good meditation practice or both yeah. can really come in handy in terms of how to self-regulate. And the philosophy that says that whatever I feel is okay. Yes, Every, as long as I'm not acting on it or acting out because of it. Right, right. Now, people get in trouble with this perspective when they then blame the patient. Oh, you're making me really agitated. Oh, you're making me really angry. Oh you're seducing me. Now, sometimes, of course, people's behavior is such that a limit has to be set. There's no yes. question about that. But a lot of this more subtle stuff, they're just living their life. Their repetitions are unfolding. And your feelings are a part of their repetition. Yeah. And in my particular field, people are coming to me because they don't want repetitions. They have a repetition, this pain when they do this thing, or they have this repetition that they can't do this thing physically that they used to do, or da, 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 da. So I have to be the break in that repetition. And, and that's really the same for you as well on the, oh, yeah. on the mental, emotional side. Absolutely, absolutely. The only difference is you have much more direct tools for being the break. You don't usually have to go through the whole understanding yourself of, the, of what caused the emotional dimensions of their repetition. And everything goes much faster and smoother. Yeah. I'm a very, very, very slow break. Because if I'm too different from the past, they don't want to have anything to do with me. If I'm too similar, they're terrified. You have to go right in that in-between in thing, allowing yourself to feel the old feelings, but doing it in a way that allows new feelings. You made that sound so easy. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> easy. <laughs> it does sound easy. <laughs> Any final thoughts for this part one, Paul? I guess the main thought, and it may be just more of what I said is, the more you can experience your feelings and the more you can experience the other person's feelings as part of the broad spectrum of human experience, that they may be intensely pleasurable, they may be exciting, they may be dreadful, they may be terrifying, 
but all of it is just part of being human. And when you have these feelings with patients, it's part of your relationship with them. And if you can just sort of say, that's what's happening between us now, you can usually ride through them without saying or doing anything. Just that attitude gives them a generosity of spirit and a kind of compassion that is going to clear up 85% of your problems. Sage words from Dr. Paul Geltner. Paul, thank you so much for coming by today. Thank you. This is David Lasondak. Thank you for listening to Body Talk. If you enjoyed what you heard, please hit the subscribe button. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the show, go to patreon.com slash bodytalkradio. This is David Lasondak saying, remember, it's all connected. See you next week. <laughs>